This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, inviting Dr. Nicoleta Colombo, who is a professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the European Institute of Oncology in Milan, Italy. And uh, the reason for this podcast is the very uh, uh, certainly awaited uh, results of this trial uh, that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Pembrolizumab for Persistent, Recurrent, or Metastatic Cervical Cancer. So, Nicoletta, thank you so much uh, once again for doing the podcast, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, very kind in, uh, invitation, and it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, um, Nicoletta, uh, everyone that I spoke to that I was uh, interviewing you is certainly looking forward to, to the uh, podcast, uh, and I hope we'll be able to get through uh, all of the questions. Uh, so I wanted to get started yes. uh, by first asking you um, if you can discuss what data that we have available prior to the Keynote 826 trial regarding the utility of pembrolizumab in the setting of uh, persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer? Yeah, I think uh, the most important data uh, come from Keynote 158, uh, which is a phase two of uh, pendro, pendrolizumab in patients with uh, cervical cancer progressing on or after chemotherapy. Um, as a matter of fact, FDA granted accelerated approval of pendrolizumab for patients with um, recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer with disease progression on or after chemo whose tumor express PDL1 uh, based on preliminary data showing uh, overall response rate of 15% in patients with PDL1 positive tumor. And also there was an updated analysis presented at the SGO this year uh, with uh, 17 months uh, additional follow-up to patients Uh, who were partial responders, developed complete response, uh, and two additional partial responses uh, uh, occurred for a total of five complete responses and nine partial responses. This is the update of study 158. And for the 82 patients with uh, PDL1 positive, uh, meaning a CPS score of one or more, uh, the overall response rate was 17.1%. Uh, while no responses were observed in the 15 patients uh, with PDL1 negative tumors. Very well. And when designing the study, what, what were your primary uh, endpoints and what were the secondary endpoints? Yeah, there were two primary endpoints, uh, co-primary, which were overall survival and progression-free survival, and uh, each were tested sequentially in three different populations according to the PDL1 expression. So the three populations were PDL1, CPS1 or more, the old camera, and the CPS10 and more population. So the overall alpha was strictly controlled at one sided, 2.5% across the six primary hypotheses and all plan analysis. The secondary endpoints for this study uh, were overall response rate, duration of response, 12 months, progression-free survival and safety. And also, we had some exploratory um, endpoints concerning quality of life, 
And in fact, patient reporting outcomes was assessed with the EuroQ quality of life EQ 5D 5L visual analog score uh, scale. Uh, and these are also were presented uh, during my presentation of ESMO. Uh, yeah, and we definitely will uh, we'll get to some of those uh, stratifications and the results of those. But I wanted to ask you also, what was the eligibility criteria for this uh, for this particular study? Yeah, the, the key eligibility criteria included persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer that was not amenable to curative treatment, and uh, ECOG performance status of zero or one. Also, prior systemic chemotherapy was not allowed unless it was administered as part of chemo-radiotherapy. And these eligible patients were randomized one-to-one to pendrolizumab, 200 milligrams, given every three weeks for up to 35 cycles or much in placebo. And uh, the treatment regimen for all patients included also standard doses of paclitaxel, and the investigator choice of cisplatin or carboplatin given every three weeks for up to six cycles, although patients with ongoing clinical benefit who were tolerating chemotherapy could continue behind six cycles after consultation with the sponsor. And also at the discretion of the investigator, patients could also receive bevacizumab. Very well. And uh, I understand you also had a stratification of the uh, randomization. Can you tell us as to what those groups were and uh, and why you did that? Yeah. Uh, first of all, the decision to use the racisma was a certification factor, uh, as were the presence of metastatic disease at uh, diagnosis and the level of PDL1 expression as measured using the uh, combined positive score or CPS. Uh, since the use of Bevacizuma was not randomized, uh, we thought it was very important to stratify for this factor because we left to the investigator uh, the choice um, whether to use or not Bevacizuma. So this was a very important certification factor. And we also know that the prognosis of metastatic disease is different compared to uh, recurrent cervical cancer, and therefore that's why this was a certification factor. And finally, CPS positivity. Um, of course, the uh, efficacy of pendulism may be related to, to, to the expression of uh, PDL1, so uh, it was very important to stratify according to these uh, important parameters. These were the three factors that we choose for certification. And Nicoletta, you mentioned also that um, the duration of treatment was allowed up to six cycles, but they they can continue beyond the six cycles if there was a favorable uh, outcome? Yes, that's right. Because pendrolizumab was given for 35 cycles or until progression, Mm -hmm. and the chemotherapy was for six uh, However, um, and, and actually, bevacizumab anti-progression. So, okay. chemotherapy for six cycles and bevacizumab anti-progression. And however, patients with ongoing clinical benefit could continue also behind six cycles after consultation with the sponsor. Very well. Nicoletta, um, one of the questions that uh, comes up from one of our fellows is the following. This is from Natalia Rodriguez from Spain. 
And she asks, uh, one point where I don't think we have uh, very definitive information is, should the PDL one status be checked on the recurrent tissue or can we rely on the status from the original primary disease? And then she goes on to ask, at this point, should we check PDL one status at all anymore? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think if you have a recent specimen, it's better to use this for testing, of course. Uh, but if this is not available, you can probably use the archival tissue as long as they are not like, you know, from 20 years ago or something <laughs> like that. So I think uh, this could be reasonable if they are mm, quite recent. Um, you can see in our population, 88% of patients are positive for PDL1. And so one may really argue whether testing is needed uh, to detect these uh, 12% of negative patients. Also, given the fact that the results of the old camera population were all statistically in favor of pembrolizumab for uh, both progression-free survival and overall survival. And Nicoletta, you mentioned, uh, I, I believe you just said that uh, the pdl one positivity in the study was about 88%. And, and one of the questions that um, came up when we discussed the, the study was, is this consistent with previous studies or is this uh, higher than on previous studies? And what, why do you think that was the, the case? Yeah, okay, so this uh, CPS positive rate uh, was, as I said, 88% in Keynote 8 to 6. Now, if you look at Keynote 158 mm -hmm. uh, study also, you see very consistent uh, data around 85%, so very similar. And um, as you probably know well, uh, the incidence of PD-1 usually increases in the earlier setting. And, and our studies are the only studies uh, which looked at these prospectively in a clinical setting, uh, which makes it uh, more relevant and confident and, I think, valuable data than any other studies. In fact, in the public domain data, uh, of course, uh, uh, you have to consider there are several limitations um, related, to, for instance, to multiple different PD-1 assay, mm -hmm. and also many of them look retrospectively uh, from small studies, and so they report like you know between 60% um, and above for PD-1 positivity. But I think one need to be also careful about this uh, as uh, each assay is different and scores are not directly comparable. So remember, this is um, not a study population. This is a prospective study. All, all, all patients were tested prospectively with a, with a solid assay. And so I think probably this is more uh, reflectable of, of the reality. So I do believe that these patients have a very high uh, level of positivity for, for PDL1. <clears throat> Yeah, and I'm glad we have this information from this study because often uh, patients will ask us what that percentage might be. So um, I'm very glad that yeah. we have that available now. Now, um, just uh, before we get into the uh, results, one one additional question with regards to the methodology. You had an interim analysis uh, in this protocol. Can you tell us the details of that evaluation? Yeah, the uh, statistical analysis plan of this study allow for two interim analysis. 
before a final analysis. Mm -hmm. And actually, the data I presented and published um, is based on the first interview analysis, which uh, was to occur when approximately 370 events of disease progression of deaths had occurred in the CPS of one or more population, and at which time all primary hypotheses were to be tested. <clears throat> Great, and that's the, the 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 publication that we have now in the in the New England Journal. Yeah, um, yeah, because as you see, all 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 endpoints were met. So mm -hmm. of course, the the future analysis will be basically descriptive and and not and not analytic because all the the primary endpoints were met through this um, primary um, analysis. <clears throat> excellent. So. Now on to the main results. What were the main results of Keynote 826 and, and what points would you um, consider should be highlighted for our audience? Yes. Well, uh, we do have uh, a lot of very good data, I think, from this study. Uh, first of all, uh, from November 2018 and January 2020, we uh, were able to enroll 617 patients. Um, and what we saw is that progression-free survival was significantly improved with the addition of pembrolizumab in all primary analysis populations. So in the population with the CPS of one or more, the hazard ratio was 0.62. And also you see the curves uh, um, began to separate around month three and then remain separated over time. And this is, I think, very important. And so the median PFS was 10.4 months in the Kendo arm versus 8.2 months in the placebo. And the 12 months progression to survival rate were 45% and 34%. And also we saw a very similar benefit of adding pendolizumab in the old camera population where the hazard ratio was 0.65. And also in the CPS of 10 or more population where the hazard ratio was 0.58. So, um, as I said, all the populations, in all populations, we saw a significant, statistically significant improvement in progression free survival based on the hazard ratio. And also, we look at the uh, subgroup analysis, uh, you know, for the subgroup pre-specified in the protocol, and we saw that the benefit of adding pebolizuma was generally consistent across the protocol-specified subgroups with all other ratios uh, favoring pembrolizumab uh, arm and all 95% confidence intervals uh, overlapping. But even more important, similar to progression-free survival, we observed that adding pembrolizumab significantly improved overall survival in all primary analysis populations. So in the uh, CPS one or more population, the hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.64, and uh, the median overall survival was not reached uh, in the pendulizumab arm, and it was 16.3 months in the placebo. And uh, similarly, uh, you see that the overall survival curve began to separate at month three and then continue to be separated over time. So at 12 months, 75% uh, of patients in the pembrolizumab arm versus 60% in the placebo were alive. And the rates at 24 months were 52% and versus 42%. Now, if you look at the old camera population, so because the one I just described was the CPS one or more, 
in the old camel population, the hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.67, and again, the p-value was absolutely uh, highly statistically significant. Now, in the overall, um, in the old camel population, the median overall survival was rich and was 24.4 months, and this compared with 16.5 months in the chemotherapy arm. So there is an improvement of eight months in the median overall survival for the old camel population. And, and also here we observe uh, overall survival rates at 12 and, 40 and 24 months, uh, which were much longer uh, in the femoral arm compared to uh, the um, chemotherapy alone arm or placebo arm. Um, now, if we look finally in the CPS 10 or more population, uh, we again see an improved overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.61. So, uh, once again, here the uh, median overall survival was not reached, and in the control arm was 16.4 months in the placebo arm. And, uh, and so if we look at the 24 months of the survival rates, these were 54%, so at two years, 54% were alive versus 45% in the placebo. And uh, also for the overall survival, the findings were very consistent across all the subgroups, the pre-specified, the protocol-specified subgroups. Um, and uh, what I want to underline that although the study was not designed to test the efficacy of uh, pembrolizumab plus chemo with versus without vivacizumab, because as I said, this was not randomized, uh, if you look at the subgroup analysis, uh, this uh, suggests that adding pembrolizumab to chemo provides benefits regardless of whether bevacizumab is used. And I think this is an important finding, uh, given that not all patients with cervical cancer are able to receive bevacizumab, as we know. Mm -hmm. And so the relative overall survival benefit observed in the pembro arm appeared to increase also with increases pdl one expression. And uh, so this is something that we see in the forest lot, and we see an increased um, benefit for pendulizumab with increasing PDL1 expression. And so the hazard ratio for the PDL1 negative population is equal one. However, we have to consider that this group is very small. I mean, we have a very small, as I said, only 12% at negative PDL1. And so I think we cannot uh, have any robust conclusions uh, regarding the efficacy of endolizumab plus chemotherapy in these patients with PDL1 negative tumor. Uh, besides progression-free survival and overall survival, we also had an increased response rate. So the addition of endolizumab was associated with higher response rate and the overall response rate ranged from 66% to 70% in the pembro arm versus 49% to 51% in the placebo. And also complete response rates were higher um, from 21 to 23% in the pembro versus 11 to 13% in the placebo. And also the median duration of response was approximately twice as long in the pembrolizumab arm uh, compared to the control. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, consistently throughout, uh, a benefit for uh, pembrolizumab. 
And um, and I think that you alluded to to um, some of the points in this question, but um, again, I wanted to reiterate on on the subgroup analysis. And this is a, a question again from one of our our fellows, Eric Estrada. Um, his question was obviously the benefits of pembrolizumab combination were seen regardless of the bevacizumab use. Uh, and his question says, uh, do you consider that with this results the addition of bevacizumab may no longer be required? even when patients can tolerate it? Well, uh, you know, as I said before, bevacizumab use was not uh, randomized. So no robust conclusions, I think, can be made. Uh, but I do believe that if a patient can tolerate uh, bevacizumab, I would be in favor of using it together with chemo and embolizumab. However, if... Uh, bevacizumab is contraindicated, uh, as it is often the case for cervical cancer because of fistula, bowel perforation problems, and so on. So in this case, we now uh, have a very valid option for these patients because pembrolizumab together with chemo can still offer a benefit. So I think this is very important. But for me, if the patient has no contraindication to BEV, I would still use uh, both BEV and pembrolizumab. Very well. Um, this next question comes from Cecilia Darín from Argentina, and she's interested in the response depending on whether the patient had metastatic disease versus those patients without metastatic disease. Um, would you treat those patients uh, differently? Would you re reserve the combination of bevacizumab for, for that group with metastatic disease? That is her question. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very good question, but um, I think I would be very, very cautious in over-interpreting subgroup analysis uh, because these are just hypotheses uh, generating, but uh, by no means conclusive. Um, uh, this is something that we have seen also in GOG240, the study with the racismum, uh, we, we saw there that patients with metastatic disease seem to derive less benefit from uh, the racismal compared to the other. Um, but I think we have to consider that this is a very heterogeneous population, which includes patients with maybe extensive disease as well as patients with maybe only few lung metastases mm -hmm. and with a completely different prognosis. So I think it's very important to generalize and, and to say that this population behaves completely differently from the recurrent persistent. Um, and so basically, I don't think we cannot rely on subgroup analysis to draw any definitive conclusion. And I do treat this patient the same way as the other. <laughs> Very well. And, and she has a follow-up question also. She says, in this setting, in this particular setting of recurrent disease or persistent disease, is there any uh, patient uh, or patient population in which you would not recommend pembrolizumab? Well, personally, given the positive results uh, in the all-camera population, uh, I would not select any patient uh, for whom no benefit can be expected. Of course, someone may question uh, the patients with negative PDL1 expression, as I commented before. This was a very, very small group, and so we cannot draw any definitive conclusions. And um, I have to say that even in this group, in the PDL1 negative group, uh, some patients had a very long-lasting response. So I think I will not, I will not exclude any patients actually. Very well. 
And um, Nicoletta, how about tumor histology? Uh, did you see similar findings uh, in the patients with squamous carcinoma versus adenocarcinoma? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. And uh, this analysis was not included in the primary analysis plan. Uh, so we will do further subgroup analysis, uh, including this one next year. So I think the data will be available next year. Okay. And um, one question, obviously, the audience is always interested is the safety profile. Uh, what were the most common adverse events that you saw in these patients? Okay, I must say that the safety profile of uh, pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy with or without erythema was quite manageable. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at the incidence of all cause uh, and also treatment-related uh, grade 3 to 5 adverse events, these were slightly higher in the pembrolizumab arm. Uh, however, patients in the tendro arm had a very uh, much longer duration of treatment than those in the placebo arm. So, as I said, these side effects were numerically higher, but just because probably patients were treated for a longer period of time. Um, approximately one-third of patients in the tendro arm had to discontinue any treatment component due to uh, adverse events. And 6% um, had to discontinue all components uh, because of uh, uh, adverse events. Uh, however, if you look at the incidence of adverse events leading to death, uh, this was similar in the treatment arms. In the Cambro arm, there were two deaths attributed to treatment. Um, one case of autoimmune encephalitis and one case of intestinal perforation, so probably related to the racismal. And as expected, the incidence of immune-mediated adverse events was higher in the pendulizumab arm. And in fact, the one death uh, in the pendulizumab arm was uh, the case of autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, but if we look at the most common adverse events, these were basically anemia, alopecia, nausea, diarrhea, and fatigue. Uh, but there were no adverse events that occur in at least 20% of patients for which the risk was greater in the pembrolizumab R compared to the placebo. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if we look at the, the most uh, important uh, immune-related uh, side effects, then we see mainly hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism, but uh, they were mainly uh, of grade 1 and 2 severity, so very few grade 3 uh, uh, immune-related side effects. Very, very well. Um, so I want to jump into the patient-reported outcomes, and obviously uh, it's great that you collected this information. I saw the compliance rate was actually really impressive, 94% uh, in, the, uh, in these groups. Um, what did you find as it related to uh, patient-reported outcomes? Yeah, patient reporting outcomes were collected uh, regularly uh, throughout treatment in, uh, in the keynote day to six. And uh, we presented the results for, for time to deterioration in the EQ5D5L visual analog uh, scale score, which was a protocol specified uh, exploratory endpoint. And what we observed is that the time to deterioration in this score was numerically longer in the pendulizumab arm, 
uh, with hazard ratio 0.75. So the median time to deterioration was uh, not reached in the pembrolizumab arm and, and was 7.7 months in the placebo arm. So it looks like we do have also um, improvement in quality of life with the use of pembrolizumab. Very well. This next question is uh, obviously not directly uh, from from the study, but this uh, question is from Eric Estrada, one of our fellows. He's in Guatemala. Um, he asks, um, such survival improvements are definitely needed in low-income countries as well, where we may not have access to these uh, agents. How can we ensure that these patients get the same uh, treatments as standards as high-income countries? Yes, I think this is a very common question. So we have a very effective treatment, which unfortunately, of course, is uh, is quite expensive. And of course, we share the same exact opinion. And I I do believe Merck will do its best to discuss uh, uh, with the relevant health authorities uh, so patients can have access. Um, especially, I think, great news for some uh, South American countries. Uh, as there is an issue with access to the racismum, so hopefully they could access uh, pembrolizumab. And I think other than that, I, I cannot say much at this time. Um, of course, we need to see how this will uh, evolve. Yeah. Um, and, and this next question, it's uh, somewhat uh, related. Uh, uh, this is from Emma Allison. Uh, she's one of our fellows in Australia. Um, she says, statistical significance and clinical significance may be considered uh, often quite different. Um, how do you think we could advocate for local approval for pembrolizumab based on a two-month improvement in progression-free survival? Yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite surprised about this question and, and this focus on uh, progression-free survival. When you have a trial which showed an improvement in overall survival mm-hmm. uh, with a difference of eight months uh, in favor of Pembro uh, in the median overall survival in the old camera population. And even more, if you look at the CPS positive population, the median overall survival was not reached while it was 16.3 or 16.4 months in the control arm as expected from GOG240. So we have a, a, a clear improvement in overall survival, and to me this is absolutely clinically meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even considering progression-free survival, as I said before, I think looking at the median is not correct because um, these curves, started to separate among three and continue to remain separated over time. So you, you should not look at the median progression of this manner, but you have to look at the hazard ratio. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the hazard ratio, um, you, you know, the hazard ratios for progression of this indicated a 35% reduction in the risk of progression in the old camel population, 38% in the CPS one or more, and 42% in CPS 10 or more. So again, to me, this is extremely clinically meaningful. Very well. Um, so now just a few additional questions. Um, is there any work being done on the use of pdl one inhibitors in the upfront setting? In other words, at the time of chemotherapy and radiation? Yes, yes, indeed. There are two ongoing trials. Um, one is the ANGOT uh, CX11 GOG3047 keynote A18, and, and this is a randomized phase 3 double blind 
study of chemoradiotherapy with or without enzolizumab uh, for the treatment of high-risk uh, locally advanced cervical cancer. And the other study is the CALA study, which, uh, which has a very, very similar study design, but the drug used is nirvalumab instead of enzolizumab. And once again, this is tested together with chemoradiation. So these two trials are are running and uh, hopefully we have good data in the future. Yeah, yeah. Look, looking forward to that. Um, well, what about uh, maintenance therapy uh, with PDO one inhibitors? As an example, in patients who achieve a complete response after carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab, particularly PDO one patients, any work being done in the maintenance uh, field? Yeah, well, um, only in the maintenance, no, but uh, there is the CC study, the big CC study um, completed the accrual, uh, and this is a study very similar to Keynote 826, but in this study, all patients had to receive uh, bevacizumab, so this was not uh, left uh, open, but all patients had uh, chemotherapy plus bed, uh, plus or minus uh, atezolizumab, and uh, so... Once again, it's not exactly as the only as a maintenance, but it's a study which included bevacizumab uh, in all patients uh, together with chemotherapy. Excellent. And uh, Nicoletta, wanting to be respectful of your time, I'll ask one last question. Um, what do you see in the future as it pertains to how we're going to be managing patients with recurrent or, or metastatic cervical cancer? Have we come to already the the Uh, standard treatment with PDL1 inhibitors or um, anything else that you see as promising? Well, I think we do have a lot of uh, very interesting data. Um, some of them available, some uh, in the future, in the near future, I hope. As you know, we recently had positive data for semiclimab uh, compared to treatment of physician choice in patients with uh, recurrent metastatic cervical cancer. Uh, which were resistant to platinum. And also, we had very positive data uh, with another anti-PD-1, which is uh, balsilimab. And actually, there is now a prospective phase 3 trial plan, uh, which is called BRAVA. And this will test uh, balsilimab against chemotherapy in this setting. So this will be another phase 3. Uh, and then we have a lot of several, uh, or a lot of uh, phase 2 um, ongoing of combination, for instance, combination of IO. Uh, we have a study ongoing with a TGIT with uh, pembrolizumab in a second line. Also, uh, we are exploring a combination of TB, which is tizotumab, vedotin, um, antibody conjugate. And this uh, actually is uh, combined with uh, pembrolizumab, and the results were presented recently at ESMO, uh, to one week ago. Uh, but also besides uh, pembrolizumab, there are other combinations, nivolumab plus epilimumab, bastilimab plus zalifrenimab, and also tiragolumab and atezolizumab and many others. So I think, uh, yes, there are a lot of phase two ongoings with all these combinations of different uh, IO immunotherapy. And so I think uh, in the future, hopefully, we will see a lot of good data and a good results. Just to remind you that FDA uh, gave a fast-track designation for the combination of bacilimab and zalifredimab based on a uh, uh, two-arm randomized uh, phase two, non-comparative phase two. 
which is the rocket study. So a lot of um, good news are coming for our patients. I'm very positive. Fantastic. Uh, Professor Nicoletta Colombo, as always, such a pleasure speaking with you. I always learn so much uh, from discussing these topics with you. I want to thank you for your time, for accepting our invitation. And of course, obviously, thank you for all that you have contributed and continue to contribute to the treatment of cancer, women with cancer, and, uh, and to our field in gynecologic oncology. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. Uh, that was really a pleasure for me. Thank you.